Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are asking a question on the minds of many politicians and a question that's coming up a lot in the mainstream media, on Facebook, it's everywhere. And it's whether or not there is a connection between risky sexual behavior and promiscuity and access to birth control, and specifically the birth control pill. And this relates to the issue over uh, the Patient Protection and Affordable Act that President Obama signed into law on March 23rd, 2010, which expanded health insurance coverage and included um, a, a provision that would ensure that, that birth control would be covered for, for women in the U.S. Um, and that meant that some employers would have to provide for birth control. This has ruffled some feathers, particularly among the Catholic Church. There, And then it got into the airwaves with Rush Limbaugh and some very unsavory comments he made about how women who take birth control are essentially, and we are using this word because it is used so liberally now in the news, sluts. Does birth control turn women into sluts? And the research, just to sum it up, Basically, no. No. <laughs> just, to, just to calm your fears right out of the gate. But don't stop listening, because <laughs> like the abortion podcast that we did a long time ago, even though this issue has been very politicized and there is a huge debate going on right now about um, reproductive rights for women in the U.S., we want to move aside from the politics as much as we can and really look at the research that's gone into the connection between pre marital sex and promiscuity and access to birth control because honestly I don't I don't really care who is right and who is wrong I just want some facts and I want to the pundits to stop yelling at each other and maybe get down to some oh I don't know Caroline some economics ooh Yes, indeed. Yeah, I bet listeners, I bet you weren't thinking about that curveball. No. I just threw it. And economics really shaped the early attitudes towards sex as far as the official attitudes held by the church and the state. Um, Often churches were responsible for funding orphanages, providing support for unwed mothers um, who were part of their their parish, and so they had an economic interest in keeping those women from getting pregnant, because otherwise they would have had to foot the bill. Right, because a lot of times the out-of-wedlock pregnancy rates were the highest among working women who at the time, and we're talking about in the um, 1800s, 1700s, even going into the 1600s, um, would not have been able to afford to work outside of the home, and also raise their child. Now, because of that high price of promiscuity, we're going to start talking about prices and demand and supply. Yep. So get ready. Because of that high price of premarital sex, a lot of people abstained until they were married. In the past 100 years, the rates of premarital sex, especially if we look just at the United States, have gone up very quickly. Um, and just to give you an idea of where we started, um, from 1896 to 1900, the 
out of wedlock birth rates were extremely low. Uh, 6% in Australia, 9% in Germany, 5% in Spain. Um, and during that time, the contraceptive methods were minimal at best. And so you would assume that with such low out of wedlock birth rates, it meant that you know, many women were not having sex outside of outside of marriage. And this is coming from a great study from the University of Pennsylvania published in November of 2011 called From Shame to Game in 100 Years, a Macroeconomic Model of the Rise of Premarital Sex and its Destigmatization. So going back to the whole cost-benefit analysis that we're getting into, as far as the church goes, if the shame or the stigma that is placed on a woman has basically a means of production. If it's benefiting someone, then it's going to continue. And so the act of shaming or um, putting someone in the stocks, as <laughs> as happened for sexual activity, if that can keep them from having sex and therefore having children out of wedlock, then they're going to do what it takes. And so these views kind of get ingrained as part of the church, and they end up persisting. And so, like I was just talking about, in 1601, the Lancashire Quarter Sessions condemned an unmarried father and mother to be publicly whipped and sit in the stocks underneath a placard that said, these persons are punished for fornication. And in 1648 in New Haven, Connecticut, a court fined a couple for having sex out of marriage, saying that the pair should be brought forth to the place of correction that they may be shamed. Yeah, early America, not very friendly toward premarital sex. Also in New Haven, New England essentially was just like a simmering pot of premarital sex slut-shaming. Uh, 69% of all criminal cases in New Haven, Connecticut, between 1710 and 1750, were for premarital sex. 69%. 69%. That is so much percent. Yes. <laughs> I just, I can't believe that they were that focused on it. And when you read about premarital sex um, at this time, it's often vilified as being debauched. It's lascivious. It's lewd. It's vain and wanton. It's a selfish act because the price is so high, because they see it as morally degrading to communities and to societies and placing undue burden on the church. And then gradually, as the state starts to take more control on the state as well. Right. And this, the, the cost-benefit analysis starts to change. This is from the same study that Kristen mentioned. In the early 19th century, French hospitals were instructed to receive abandoned children, thereby reducing the cost of premarital sex, i.e. having to raise a child out of wedlock. And so around this time, you know, the wealthy had to worry about how illegitimacy would affect property transfer. So there are a lot of wealthy people telling their children that they better not have sex outside of marriage. Now, one of the biggest impacts to lowering the price of premarital sex is also technology. As contraceptive methods begin to develop, and then we have this crucial moment in 1960 when uh, the first birth control pill is approved by the FDA, the price of premarital sex, i.e. pregnancy risk, is drastically 
lowered. And while that's going on, this public attitude towards premarital sex as some kind of lewd and lascivious act also begins to change. And you see this shift in public attitude that is, that's been slow to catch up. Um, but from 1900 to the turn of the 21st century, the percent of women, U.S. women, who engaged in premarital sex jumped from 6% to 75%. So this is going on, but what are our attitudes toward it? Because this is very important as well in terms of driving down that price of promiscuity. So in 1968, only 15% of women had a permissive attitude about premarital sex, despite the fact that about 40% of 19-year-old females had done it. And by it, I do mean six. But then by 1983, the permissive attitudes had jumped to 45%. But at the same time, there's still the gap because by then, 73% of 19-year-old females had had sex. Right. And a 2003 Harvard study offered some explanations for changing attitudes And they have some highly technical language that I will break down for you. They say that the replacement of more conservative birth cohorts born in the early 20th century with more liberal cohorts born later was part of the change. And that just means that our conservative grandparents, our grandparents are dying and that and so they're being replaced by people like us. I know it's sad. Um, Another another uh, explanation they give is that age related changes Uh, occur in the views of each cohort and that cultural changes affect all of the views of all of the cohorts simultaneously. Right. And it's it's really important that we think about this issue of culture because um, there was an article over at the big by Marina Adshad and she she's looking at this issue of the price of promiscuity and pre- premarital sex falling as a result of birth control but she is curious about the fact that even though the risk of pregnancy has gone down the rate of out of wedlock pregnancy has gone up uh, from 2% in the 1920s in the U.S. to 40% in 2007, according to the CDC. And I know that since 2007, that number has only gone up. And she says that that represents a major shift in how our society accepts premarital sex as more of a normative behavior because it can't just be birth control that is um, instigating all of this premarital sex because clearly we're either not using it correctly or at all because that rate of out of wedlock birth is so um, has risen so much. Right. And going along those same lines, there was a study from the University of Pennsylvania and from the University of Carlos III of Madrid like to go there, um, called Social Change to Sexual Revolution, which states that economists have estimated that, get this, people, listen in, listen in, less than 1% of the increase in premarital sex among teenagers is the result of the invention of the pill. And teenage girls don't even use the pill all that much. No. It's not that widespread among them. Okay, so referencing the same study that Kristen was just mentioning, um, they and going back to the technology thing, they say that as technology has made better birth control possible, there's less reason to, A, abstain from sexual intercourse, and B, inculcate sexual mores. So as 
the birth control methods get better, parents and the church and the state have less reason to hammer it into their kids' heads that it's something they need to avoid. So less parental inculcation of mores, Mm -hmm. uh, it, it ends up resulting in maybe less of a feeling of shame if young girls decide to participate. So having less of a feeling of shame, you're more likely to feel free to do something. Also, if your peer group is doing it, if your peer group is engaging in sexual activity or if you're seeing it on TV all the time or if just people are talking about it in a, in a behavior, not just sexual activity, seems common and accepted, you are more likely to participate. But on the flip side of of that whole issue of um, peer influence and the lessening of shame, there's also... Going back to the importance and force of um, societal viewpoints as driving down uh, that, that price or influencing the price of premarital sex and promiscuity, the flip side of that is still happening, even though access to birth control is abundant for teens these days. Um, this is coming from the Wall Street Journal, which was reporting on 2011 data released by the CDC, and they found that in 1988, more than half of teen females and 60% of teen males who had never married reported having sexual intercourse. That number has dropped as of 2011 to 42.6% for young women and 41.8% for young men, meaning that the teen sex rates have dropped. And why do abstinent teens refrain from premarital sex? It's not because they can't get their hands on some birth control. They most frequently cite religious or moral objections to sex as their reason for holding off. And their other two top reasons, desire to avoid pregnancy, there's that cost again, and also not having found the right person yet, which might have to do with their peer group. Mm -hmm. And just to reiterate the economic perspective of uh, premarital sex, because I think it's so important to try to move, steer the conversation away from purely moralistic terms. Uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research in the U.S. published a study in the year 2000 uh, stating that American teens will change their sexual behavior and birth control choices in response to changes in the price of pregnancy measured by labor market conditions, AIDS incidents, welfare benefits, and abortion restrictions. So there's so much more that is going into our decisions to have sex with someone outside of wedlock or to have sex with tons of people outside the bounds of marriage, um, aside from whether or not we can get our hands on oral contraception for cheap. Right. Exactly. And what happens when people can't get oral contraception for cheap? Uh, Emily Gray Collins and Brad Hirschbein of the Population Studies Center at the University of Michigan Institute for Social Research released a paper in May 2011, uh, 2011 looking at what happened when the price of birth control increased at college health centers. And basically what happened is that when Congress passed the Deficit Reduction Act in 2005 and then it went into effect in 2007, they inadvertently increased the effective price of birth control pills more than threefold from about 5 to $10 to about 30 to $50 per month, which is a lot if you were in college. Or just in general. Right. <laughs> it is a lot of money. They found that this price increase reduced the use of the pill by 2 to 4% on average among college women. College women did cut back on sex somewhat, but the rate of accidental pregnancy didn't decline. 
And they looked at how much more of an effect it had on women who were in bad financial shape as opposed to women who, who had insurance and could still afford it. Um, among women in bad financial shape, the rate of unintended pregnancy actually increased 23% because many switched to cheaper, riskier methods or unprotected sex. Women with no insurance who had sex infrequently would instead opt for over-the-counter emergency contraception, but women who, with no insurance who had sex frequently opted for condoms as well as increasingly relying on the rhythm method and unprotected sex, which is why you see that that um, jump in the accidental rate of pregnancy. And as far as those alternate methods, the rhythm method, just having plain unprotected sex. Plain old unprotected unprotected sex. The failure rates are pretty scary. And this raises the whole cost-benefit analysis issue again. While the failure rate for imperfect use of the pill is 9 per 100, so that's 9 pregnancies out of 100 women over a year uh, of use, uh, for withdrawal, it's twice that. And the failure rate for periodic abstinence is nearly three times as high, while for completely unprotected sex, it's 85 per 100 women. So perhaps because of the economic risk that a woman and man might be putting themselves at by having risky unprotected sex, previous studies have also found that contraceptives, which includes condoms and birth control, are relatively price inelastic, meaning that the demand for them stays pretty steady no matter what the price is. Um, Because the benefit, i.e. the joy of sex, is constant, and it's something that, um, especially in today's culture, outweighs maybe the uh, the upfront cost of protecting yourself. And I feel like a lot of the um, the focus on birth control in the media at the moment is on young single women in college who are being portrayed as these, you know, they're looking for a good time. Exactly, I couldn't have put it better. But the use of contraception doesn't stop when someone gets married. People still, (laughs) people still want to have control over the size of their families. Right. Um, which is why we felt like it was also important in this conversation to offer up some statistics on uh, the rate of contraceptive methods by married women of childbearing age. And we should also point out, we haven't gone into this yet as well, um, but also birth control can be necessary for women who are not necessarily not looking to get pregnant, but might have certain uh, health conditions such as polycystic ovarian syndrome that require birth control and regulating those hormones to prevent the growth of ovarian syndrome. Which, yeah, which was part of Sandra Flute's argument in front of that hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to those married women and contraceptive stats, uh, we have some information from the CDC, and this is looking at uh, their use of contraception from 2006 to 2008, and it's in comparison to a number of European countries that have a very low fertility rate. Um, in the U.S., about 15%. Not an insignificant number. 15% of married women are on the pill. 5% use an IUD. And 25% uh, use female sterilization. 
And as far as oral contraception, women in France, the Netherlands, and the United Kingdom are more likely to rely on oral contraception than women in the United States. And that's a comparison of about 29 to 44 percent in those previously mentioned countries to the United States, which is 16 percent. Women in France use the IUD to a greater extent than women in the U.S. do, whereas the male condom is used by partners of approximately 25 percent of married women in Spain and the U.K. So the point we're trying to make is, like you said, Caroline, it is erroneous to only frame the conversation around birth control as something that is only accessed by possibly teen girls and, um, you know, barely not teen girls, essentially, um, in college. And finally, the last point that we, um, we feel like should be raised is that while a lot of these single women are being labeled as sluts and even, yes, whores for their sexual behavior or just their choice to take birth control. Statistically, men engage in riskier sexual behavior and with more partners over the life term than women do. And this might be an issue of self-reporting where men might inflate their numbers and women deflate their numbers because they're of those lingering uh, social shaming against premarital sex and promiscuity. But statistically, men report two to four times more sexual partners than women. Yeah, according to a national health statistics report from March 2011, men ages 25 to 44 in 2006 to 2008 reported having slept with a median of six women, while women in the same age bracket said they slept with a median of four men, but men count a greater number of sexual acts as sex. And that's just referring to the median number. When you average out those numbers, uh, the average number of partners, sexual partners that men have is 31.9. So clearly you have some Wilt Chamberlain-esque outliers in there, whereas the average for women is much lower at 8.6. Yeah. So for me, the biggest, the biggest takeaway from all this um, research, and especially all of these economic models that we've talked about at length, um, is a reframing in my brain of the, the public conversation that's going on around reproductive rights and especially this access to birth control. Um, I can understand the more uh, politically dicey issues of whether or not employers should be forced to supply birth control uh to employees. But when you get beyond that and actually, you know, think about whether or not birth control is somehow turning women into just promiscuous sex mongers, you quickly, quickly realize that birth control and the technology has much less to do with it than our collective actions and acceptance of sex as a pleasurable activity between people. Between people. Exactly. It's people being people. Yeah. So um, so I hope that this has been enlightening for listeners. Um, it, it was enlightening for me. I was not expecting for this conversation to take an economic turn, but I'm so glad that economists have, have taken such a, a hard look at it. Right. The cost-benefit analysis is a perfect way mm-hmm. to look at it. People have to weigh a lot of actual literal costs, how much money it would cost uh, cost to raise a child, but they also have to look at the, the more personal, mental and emotional costs. Yeah, and thank heavens we didn't live in New Haven in the Shoot. 1600s. <laughs> the stocks would be uncomfortable. 
And now it's time to open it up to listeners. What what do you think about the situation that's going on? Um, do you think that there should be more access to birth control? Do you think that this economic model is totally bunk? Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send them, or you can head over to Facebook and leave us a comment there. And in the meantime, we got a couple of listener letters to read. This is a, an email from Sandy about our foster care podcast. She says, after a year of paperwork, training, and waiting, I've just been matched with a 10-year-old girl for foster-to-adopt placement. We start her gradual transition to my house tomorrow. I'm a first-time parent, so I'm scared and excited. I'm in Colorado, and the state has made some steps to help foster kids, such as, one, working to keep the child in the same school during care, if that's in the best interest of the child. Two, requiring high schools to accept all credits when a child transfers so the child can stay on track to graduate. Three, extend Medicaid and other support services through the age of 21. And four, work with teenagers so that they can gain independent living skills before they age out. Everyone I've dealt with has the best interest of the children in the hearts and brains, but funding, time, and resources can only go so far. More families, especially families of color, are needed for placements. And I've got another email here from Rachel, also about our foster care episode, and it's a sweet story. Um, She writes, I was a product of a 17-year-old unwed mother, and I was adopted through a close adoption at two and a half months of age, but for those first months, I was in foster care. I've never found my birth mother, but I did connect a few years ago with my foster family, and that was amazing. They still had pictures of me as a newborn with their daughters, hugging on me in their family albums, and the most fascinating pictures were of the morning before they had to take me to the adoption agency to meet my parents. I'd only ever seen the pictures that were taken with my parents after they were given me. Same little outfit which my mom saved, two different families. My foster mother told me that she was worried for years that I had woken up from a nap I was having and then they dropped me off and wondered where they were. It was so nice to know that I had been very much loved even during that short little gap before I had my own family. I think a lot of foster parents are the most selfless people in the world to take in a child who needs a home, love them like their own, and then have to give them back. And she's also majoring in social work because she wants to find a way to support the adoption industry. So good for you, Rachel. And thanks for sharing your thoughts. Um, and thanks to everyone who's written in. Momstuff at discovery.com is the email address. And you can send us uh, a little message on Facebook if you'd like. And I do have a Facebook request that I'm going to offer up right now. We are just about 100 likes away from a nice round 10,000 thumbs up on our fan page. And I know that it's just numbers, but people in, look, the, in internet land, numbers mean a lot. Yeah, look, if my parents can go on Facebook and like us, you can too. So what I'm asking is for, a, a, I'm, I'm going to call this the 10,000 like drive. Not because there's a good ring to it, but because it <laughs> gets across the point. I would I would be really pleased if uh, people would listen to this episode and go like us on Facebook. That's all I'll say about it. And you can also find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And you can read about what we're writing during the week at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?